We are in chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, I, we just come here believing, Lord, that you have a word for us, that you want to speak to us, Lord, that you're not silent, Lord, that you, uh, Father, are so involved in our lives that you love us. And I just pray, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, as we're reading the prophet Isaiah so much about Lord Jesus. I want to read the, reading about that tonight. Jesus in the Old Testament, Lord, the revelation of who he was, who he was going to be, Lord. I just pray, Father, that you would open up this word to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's been a while since we've been in Isaiah, and remember that Isaiah from chapter 1, he actually was a prophet. His prophetic ministry was during the reign of at least five kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, and in chapter 7, the ministry here He's going to be dealing with one king. His name is Ahaz. Ahaz was one wicked dude. He was one wicked dude. He was uh, the son of Jotham. He was the grandson of Uzziah. And, you know, he he had a, a a good father. But just because someone has a good father doesn't mean they won't fall away from the Lord. The guy who had the best father in the history of the world fell and fell into sin, Adam. I would say that his father was pretty good. And so if Adam can fall into sin, uh, anyone can. And so Ahaz came to the throne when he was 20 years old. He was 20 years old. And, you know, you got to remember that when there was a, a wicked king, uh, there was no Supreme Court to balance the power. There was no Congress to balance the power. If he was g- uh, godless, then uh, it was truly going to be uh, a disaster. And so uh, he was uh, someone who, what made to me, can we put this light back on? Did it? Was that, did that mean to just flash right off? <laughs> Maybe the bulbs went off. Um, when I think of Ahaz, I always think of a guy who, when, when the going got rough, he went into more sin. Like there were some kings like Rehoboam. Rehoboam wasn't that great of a king. He was Solomon's son, and he was a pretty lousy king, but... When Egypt attacked Israel, he repented. He truly repented. When Asa, I mean, rather Ahaz, it was the other way around. The worse things got, the worse he sort of went into sin. The worse he went into sin. And so uh, it says in verse 16 of Second Chronicles 28, just to give you an idea. Hey, guys, some more lights just went off. You just flipped some. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's at the same time that uh, um, when, when things got bad, he got he got um, th- he got worse. And so in Second Chronicles 28, it says that the Edomites attacked Judah and carried away uh, captives. And the, then the Philistines invaded the cities of the lowland and they took various cities there. Uh, and it says, for the Lord had uh, brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. And then also, uh, 
Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him and did not assist him. And so uh, it just got worse and worse and worse uh, for him. But he, 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 it says in verse 22, and this is key, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. In the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And this is one reaction that people have to, to calamity in their life. They go into worse sin. They go into more drugs. They go into uh, more abuse uh, of people, uh, of their bodies. Or, or they'll ignore God even more. Or they'll shake their fist at God even more. They'll get more rebellious. And it, it truly is a sign that someone has a seared conscience. And so uh, this was uh, the... Uh, this was the guy that Isaiah is having to deal with. Isaiah was, uh, uh, you know, he, he dealt with Uzziah for, for a time, and Uzziah's son, which were good kings. But then sort of he's having to deal with this guy who's just uh, truly a rebel. And so it says in verse 1 of Isaiah 7, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And so there, these are two kings from the north. One is from the northern kingdom. Remember, by this time, Israel has been split in half, and there's Judah in the south. In the north, there's ten uh, tribes. These, the, the north is called Israel, even though they've forsaken God. They're called Israel. Israel in the north, the ten kingdom uh, tribes in the north, are latching up with the king of Syria in the north, and they're both coming against uh, Jerusalem, uh, both of them. And... It was ultimately uh, unsuccessful, th this, this war that the king of Israel and Syria waged against Judah. But if you read Second Chronicles 28 also, there was just an enormous amount of damage as a result of it. In fact, they killed 120,000 people in Judah actually in one day. And many of the people of Judah were carried back to the north as slaves. And it was only because a prophet intervened that it was only because a prophet intervened that uh, the, the people were sent back to Judah. So they were coming against, you see there in verse 1, they're coming against Jerusalem to make war against it, but they could not prevail against it. And it was told that the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, people were just terrified. So all these people had been killed. They knew that, that many people in the countryside had been killed. They were just thinking they were going to be next. Uh, they, they're thinking that that's going to happen, that they're going to be next. Again, there was tremendous evil in the south, and that is why God is... It, there's tremendous evil in Judah, and that's why God is just judging the land. And so uh, uh, they're convinced, as any people are who are... You know, in rebellion against the Lord, their hearts are filled with fear. And this is one of the things that we learn from the Old Testament. In Leviticus 27 and De Deuteronomy 28, if we're leading a life of sin, we're going to be overtaken by fear. We're, we're going to be overtaken by the certainty of fear. And again, it, it, so they find out that this, this army is coming against them, just mowing everything down in, in, in its way. And it says their heart, it says actually the heart of the king in verse 2, and the heart of his people were as trees of the woods 
are moved with the wind, and, and you know they're just they're just hardened and terrified, uh, and, and sort of the wind is just playing around with them. The, the sort of deal is is what is trying to you know they're trying to uh, the, the the thought there that's trying to to convey, and so. You know, one thing that we learn from the Bible, though, is that the people of God, the children of God, one of the one of the benefits, one of the blessings of being in the will of the Lord is that we don't have to live in fear. The Bible says that God has not give us, given us a spirit of fear. He's given us the power of love, uh, uh, power and a sound mind. And what fear does, it crumples up our mind. And we're thinking just worst case scenario uh, of what is going to happen. And uh, so, but, you know, because Ahaz was such a wicked king and because his people were just following him and what he was doing, they were just completely um, given over to fear. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go now to meet Ahaz, you and Sher-Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fear fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. So it's saying these two countries that are coming against you, Syria and then, and then Israel in the north, they're, they're like, you know, don't be scared of them. They're like smoking firebrand. A firebrand is like a glowing piece of coal. And by saying it's a smoking firebrand, it's like it's, it's in decline. It's, it's, it, the, the the fire has lost, uh, or the, the the coal has lost its it, its power, and there's nothing left left more than smoke here. And he's just telling them that's that's all they are to me. And it's it's just amazing when we put our problems, and we were able to by faith look at our problems in how the Lord looks at our problems. You know, to us they seem so huge. To God, they're like smoking firebrand, just the smoke of the world. You know, there, there is as nothing uh, to him. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting here that God does not just rain fire down on Ahaz. Ahaz deserved to be completely wiped out. And I was talking about this this morning. It is amazing to me as you read through the Old Testament the resources that God devoted to the most wicked kings that, you know, in the Old Testament. It seems like the good kings sometimes, you know, the prophets didn't show up in their court. But it was the wicked kings that, that God sent the prophets to. And I guess that does make sense, right? He, he would send his strongest prophets in the times of, of greatest need. Now, Isaiah was going to be used with Hezekiah as well, who was Ahaz's son. But... Uh, but uh, in general, in the Old Testament, it is truly amazing. King Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel ever knew, uh, Elijah went to him over a period of 30 years. And then Elisha, they, they just never, God never gave up on this wicked king, Ahab. And so he's going here, and instead, we, we actually, with Ahab, we saw that uh, many times, for some reason, God had mercy on Ahab that there would be some army coming against them, and for some reason, the Lord wouldn't wipe Ahab out. And, and we learned it was because of the mercy of God. We've seen the same thing here. Why, well, this wicked king, why not just wipe him out? It's the mercy of God. God's still trying to show him, look, I'm God. I am real. I'm the living God. I, you know, you, you need to bow down before me and follow me. And And so this is what, uh, you know, the Lord did through Isaiah with Ahab. I just want to go back to that same thing in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah, the Lord says to Isaiah, you go, go to this people in verse 9, And but I, I, I have some bad news for you, Isaiah, that they're not listening, they're not seeing, 
their hearts are dull. They've shut their eyes, verse 10 of chapter 6. Their ears are heavy. And they're going to ignore, they're going to ignore you. And, and Isaiah says, well, how long am I supposed to do this? He says that at the beginning of verse 11 of chapter 6. How long am I supposed to do this? If they're shutting their eyes, if their if they're, you know, ears are heavy, in other words, they're not listening, and their heart, they're refusing to, to, to turn and, and be healed, how long do I got to do it? And what does God say? Until Verse 11, he says, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, until the houses are without a man, until the land is utterly desolate. And, and so he says, look, until complete judgment just wipes them out, I want you to continue to go and warn them. And maybe like Nineveh, when Jonah was sent to Nineveh, maybe that they will repent. And so... Uh, and so this is the same thing that is is going on with Ahaz. And so again, Isaiah says, "Take heed and be quiet." You know, so oftentimes when we're when we ha- when we're in fear, what do we do? You know, when we're in fear, so yakety 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 yak. Just all the horrible things that are going to happen in our life. We just think of this bad scenario and that bad scenario and what about this and what about that. And we'll get a little later on in the chapter. It's going to talk about it. Everyone was talking about a conspiracy that was going to swallow them up. And and, and that so is true about fear. Ever been in a situation where just fear is prevailing and everyone's in their own little groups or just split up and and stuff like that? And everyone's just, oh, no, this is happening and that's happening. And the paranoia is just feeding off uh, uh, of each other and and, and this type of thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, people are just talking. I remember when I was in in graduate school, I I always studied by myself because the, the students in my class would just be... Uh, with each other, and, and there was just such paranoia all the time. They were just all—they were so paranoid. They, they'd been talk about how fearful and paranoid they were. I—I I, I said, I just can't take this, and I went off and I studied by myself. But here it says, "Be quiet," verse four, and do not fear, or be faint-hearted. Now, that's interesting here, because the Lord is telling him that uh, he. He did, didn't have to fear or be faint-hearted, even though he was a wicked man. A wicked person has every reason to fear. But he's telling him, look, even though you're wicked, listen, you don't have to fear. You're going to see my hand at work. Now, interestingly, we're told as believers that if, we, if we're walking with the Lord... The, the safest place to be is in the will of God. We need not fear. So we don't need like an Isaiah to come into our life, someone to show up and, and say, look, you don't, have to, you, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be faint-hearted because the Word of God tells us we don't have to. The Word of God tells us uh, that we don't have to if, if, we're, if we're walking with the Lord, if we're following Him. If we're abiding in Christ, Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In other words, they will be kept safe in the shadow of the Almighty. But who is going to, get kept, who is going to be kept safe in the shadow of the Almighty? It's he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. So we, we can know we, uh, that... The, we can know just by the promise of the word of God that we don't have to fear. Just because, you know, if we're abiding with the Lord. Interestingly enough, Ahaz had no business not fearing because he was a wicked man. But Isaiah came in and said, look, I don't know why the Lord wants to, to defeat your enemy. So you don't have to fear. So be quiet, um, he, he told him. And uh, then it says here, do not fear or be faint-hearted for the, these two stubs of smoking firebrands. For the, 
of these two stubs and smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of resident Syria and the son of Ramalia, because, verse 5, Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. So that, so these, what, what was going on here is these two enemies of Judah... Remember, it was Judah, which is the house of David, which is the messianic line. That's the line of kings that God had promised to establish, uh, which eventually would result in, 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 in Jesus, the Messiah, the, the Messiah. They were under the promise of protection now. But the, in the north in Syria, they were coming against Judah, and they were saying, we're going to put a king there. We're going to wipe out this Ahaz guy. We're going to put in our own king. And, and 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 replace it with this person named the, the with the son of Tabal. We don't know who he is. Historians don't know who this guy is, but it was some person who lived who they were going to kill Ahaz and put in place. Verse seven says, "Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand." So this is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz, this wicked king, and he's saying, "Don't fear, because it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus." And the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now he's going to continue prophesying about this and get even more specific. But the, the bottom line is Isaiah is telling him, don't worry. They're not going to take you over. They're not going to kill you and replace you as king. Even though he deserved it. He's saying it's not going to happen. And he's saying there, interestingly, in verse 8, he says, Within 65 years, Ephraim, which is another word for the northern kingdom, it will be broken. In other words, it's going to be wiped out completely. So we know that prophecy came to place or came, came to fruition. At this point right here, it's, it's actually the year 734 B.C. when Isaiah makes this prophecy. In about 12 years' time, uh, the Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern kingdom and carried the north away. Interestingly, 60, uh, the, the prophecy here, though, says 65 years 65 years from the time of this prophecy was 669 B.C. By then, that was about uh, 40 years after the original Assyrian invasion in which they carried the people away. It was 65 years later that there was a second deportation. But it was interesting at that time, if you guys remember our study through the Old Testament, remember after the time when Assyria took all the people in the north away, they replaced it with its own people. And do you remember when the lions came in and started wiping the people out and the, and the people of the land said, hey, send us some priests because this God of this people here is, is really judging us and we need some priests uh, to be sent here. So they actually went to the king of Assyria who had removed many of the people um, who had removed many of the people of the north away back to Assyria and said, would you call some of these people back, mainly people who are priests, to tell us what to do so we're not getting, we won't be judged in this land? It was a really odd situation where the Assyrian people themselves are asking a Syrian king who's not a, a believer in God, send us priests of these people. And so at that time, they sent priests of the people back to the north and uh, and it was at that time that these priests came back, but the religion they brought back was a, was a just twisted, perverted version of what the worship of God real, what really was. It was what we would call later, what would later be called Samaritans. Samaritans, remember uh, the, the, at the time in Jesus' day, the Samaritans didn't get along with uh didn't get along with the Jews. They believed just in the first five books of the Old Testament. They, all ha they also had all kinds of superstition. But it's interesting. It, I, I hope you followed me here. I know this is, isn't easy to follow here. But that, that specific prophecy within 65 years, this whole northern kingdom is going to be wiped out. 
it 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 wasn't 65 years later that that the main that that the armies of Assyria came in and wiped the country out that happened in just 20 years it was 65 years when these these priests came back to the country and just created this 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 area up in the north of this defiled religion and so it's interesting what what is you know what God describes here as as broken as being wiped out is different than what me, we may think. We may think it's just an enemy coming into and destroying them, but actually, what the prophet here meant is you're going to have a different kind of perverted, twisted, messed up religion come in, and that's what's going to break you. Is everyone following me? I know this has been a little difficult to follow. So he said, 65 years from now, you're going to be broken. But in 20 years, they were wiped out. The, 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 their king was, was, was carried off, They'd, and, and they didn't even have a ruler anymore, and they were just, the north was part of, of another country. But it wasn't until 40 years later that these false priests came in and defiled the religion of the land and created this what's called Samaritan worship. That, in that It was that in the eyes of the Lord that really broke the country. And so I, I, I think it, it could be said even of, the, uh, even of this country, if, if, I don't know, if Canada, God forbid, came in and, and, and took us over. You know, in God's eyes... What, what, what really is judgment on this country wouldn't be Canada taking us, uh, taking us over. It would be perhaps what's going on today. You know, a, 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 a version of Christianity taking over the land, which is just twisted and wrong and sugar-coated and watered down. That's real destruction. So anyway, interesting there, um, you know, that, that, that prophecy... That prophecy. Verse 10 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to King Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourselves from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? So this is, this is Isaiah speaking. So Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to test the Lord. In verse 13, Isaiah responds by saying, hear now, house of David. He's reminding Ahaz, you know, you're a wicked dude, but you're still in the messianic line. You are of the house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you also are wearying my God also? In other words, you know, you think you're real spiritual saying, no, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. Actually, that's not spiritual at all, is what he's saying. Verse, verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so... You were all familiar with that. That is from the book of Matthew. It was given to Joseph, who found his, all of a sudden found this woman he was engaged to. Actually, he was betrothed to. He was under a contract to marry her. All of a sudden, she's pregnant. Not a happy day for Joseph. It's like, how is this woman, who I'm under contract to marry, I've never known her, I've never had sex with her, she's pregnant. The angel came to Joseph in Matthew and said, no, she's pregnant, but she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's going to give birth to a son and he's going to be called Emmanuel, which means, Emmanuel means what? God with us. It comes from this uh, verse right here, given to this most wicked king. Is that odd or what? Like why would one of the most fantastic, fabulous prophecies of the Old Testament could be given to a guy like this. Well, it's same again. It's, it's this, this theme that for some reason the Lord went to the most wicked of kings and ministered to them in the deeper and in a more profound way than he did anybody else. Now I want to just back up a little. And, and you know, it's, it, it, it is... 
pretty amazing that God comes to Ahaz and in verse 7 he says, look, ask for a sign, just anything. Ask for a sign to, so you can be assured that what I have told you, in other words, these two kings are not going to overrun you, you're not going to get killed, you're not going to be defeated, you're not going to be wiped out, and just to give you assurance that this is going to come to pass, my prophecy Ask for a sign, and, and, and the fact that you'll see this sign come to fruition, that will, you know, that, that will prove to you that it's not going to happen. He says, no, I'm not going to ask. Verse 12, he says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Hey, listen, you know, a word of advice for you just as your pastor. If God ever tells you, you know, ask for me for a sign, please go for it. You know, tell them to, to, to turn the sky pink or the moon purple or the sun blue or whatever. I mean, come on. Would this be awesome or what? You know, let me see the moon, you know, go across the sky or let me see. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, an airplane start going backwards. I mean, I, I don't know, but, but, but don't turn them down here. But Isaiah said, because, you know, you said to him, look, okay, you know, verse 13, be stubborn. Don't ask for a sign, but God himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, things start getting a little difficult here. It says in verse 15, curds and honeys he shall eat that he may know to refuse uh, the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And so what the, I guess the thing that confuses people about this is, wait a second, this seems this prophecy that Matthew cites here seems to have direct application for this king, King Ahaz. When Isaiah seems to be telling King Ahaz, look, before this child who's going to be born, she uh, shall know how to, uh, you know, choose between good and bad. Both these kings are going to be wiped out, which actually happens. Both the kings that were coming against them within two years were killed within two years. So what do we make of this? Well, in the Old Testament, in the prophetic books, actually, oftentimes there was an immediate fulfillment and there was a fulfillment that, you know, more in the distant future. The principle and most profound application here is really for, you know, to the Messiah. Because, because and how do we know that? Well, the name, Emmanuel, God is, is with us. And, and not only that, it says, you know, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so that's talking literally about a virgin conceiving you know, w without, w without, you know, coming together with, with a man. Uh, and so it's believed that though there was some child born in the royal household that was going to be born uh, at that time, and with, by the time that kid was two or three years old, both these kings would be killed, that, look, the, the, the greater application here is to the Messiah because... You know, at the time of Ahaz, there was no virgin who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Whereas this seems, to, this this indicates here that that's exactly what would happen in this prophecy. Now, some people say that this word here, uh, Alma, uh, for virgin, which is the Hebrew word uh, Alma, it's not necessarily in other Hebrew texts. It wasn't always uh, necessarily used as for a woman who had never had sex before. It could just mean like a woman. When Song of Solomon, we know for certain that it was 
um, used to be a, a woman who had never had sex before. Uh, but most importantly, uh, the Septuagint, which was written 200 years before Christ, uh, that was when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. The word that they used, the Greek word that they used right here in the book of Isaiah was the Greek word Parthenos, which meant an untouched virgin. And so before Jesus was ever born, there was a translation of this verse and into Greek, and the word that they used to translate it was an untouched version. An untouched version was going, and this was going to be the sign, was going to conceive. That's what's going to be the sign. Now, it's not going to be a sign if just a, a virgin has sex with a man and she conceived and has a son. What kind of sign is that? Right? We see that all the time. That's not a sign. But yet, you know, critics of the Bible will come in and say, oh, you know, that's not really that word there is, it, it, it is not, you know, could mean any, you know, any woman. Well, that is not the way it was translated 200 years before Jesus was born. And, and, and more importantly, when you look in the book of Matthew and when you look in the book of Luke, clearly, it's clear as day, it says that Mary had never known a man at the time she became pregnant. And so uh, here you have this uh, amazing prophecy. Is a little sort of confusing to, uh, you know, the fact that it had some kind of immediate application in addition to a more distant application, but uh, still, uh, uh, you know, a, a pretty profound sign. And, and, and some... Some other people just add here, you know, why was it given to Ahaz? Well, just as a reminder to him that, look, you you are in the house of David. That's what it says in thir um, verse 13. Here now, O house of David. And he, so he's reminding him, look, you're in the, the royal bloodline. You are in the messianic line. You're in the messianic line. And, 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 and part of what he, was do, what he was doing with this wicked guy Ahaz was telling him, you're in the messianic line and someday there's going to be a son born to a virgin and the virgin is going to give birth to the Messiah. He's, he's telling this to Ahaz in the hopes of maybe even that, if he told him that, that maybe this wicked king would turn around. It's an amazing demonstration of the grace and mercy of God. Why God de deals with wicked people like this, I don't know. Uh, but he does, and he's de dealt with the wickedness in my own heart in a similar way, in the wickedness of your heart in the same way. That's just his nature. It's, it's amazing uh, to me. So, uh, the virgin birth... Remember in Genesis 3.15, it was actually prophesied there when the first prophecies in the Bible where God told the serpent, I will put enmity between thy seed and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. It's always the seed of the man. How can there be a seed of the woman? Well, it's talking about the, the, um, the, the, the virgin birth, the conception by the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, amazing, amazing prophecy here. It's interesting, Jews even today consider this verse here in chapter 7. I wouldn't say all Jews, for example. I don't know what your wife would say. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what your wife would say, uh, Don. But the uh, I had a, Jew, a woman who worked for me who was a Jewish woman. And she said, if Jesus is really the Messiah, this is years ago, this woman, 
uh, came to me who worked for me and says, if Jesus is really the Messiah, she was Jewish. She said, how come he was not, he's not called Emmanuel? That's what she asked me. I thought it was the strangest question. Because I always thought, well, he is called Emmanuel. <laughs> but but, but in, in her eyes or in her ears, he's not called Emmanuel. He's called Jesus. And you know, I told her about uh, you know what it says in, in the book of, of Matthew. But she had been somewhere, and I think she was of the conservative tradition as well, that uh, they were teaching when the Messiah comes, his name is going to be Emmanuel. So Jews to this day believe this is talking about the Messiah. Well, let's move on here. It says, so then it says in verse 17, this is hard to follow here. It says, he switches from telling them, you're not going to be defeated. So up to this point, Isaiah is telling Ahaz, you're not going to be defeated by these two wicked kings in the north. But he completely switches directions in, in verse 17. And, and basically what he's going to start talking about here is he's going to say, but eventually you are going to be judged yourself by a different king, the king of Assyria. And that's what he starts talking about in verse 17. He says, then the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. So he's talking now about his, uh, yeah, his father's house. Days that have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. So he's referring there to the split which had happened um, right after Solomon when Ephraim or Israel departed from Judah and the ten tribes went up north and the two stayed in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Now he's going to be prophesying against Ahaz. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. So this is just, you know, the Lord, when he wants a plague of locusts or bees to come or flies, he just whistles. I can't, I'm not one of those whistle guys, but he just whistles and, you know, they come. And verse 19 is, they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorns and all the pastures. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. It shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey, everyone will eat who is left in the land. In other words, the land's going to be so wiped out that people are just going to be living on wild honey and maybe some curds they'll get from some cows or cattle that are running wild. And this is actually winds up happening with Ahaz's son. Ahaz's son. Hezekiah, in his reign, the Assyrians were just going to come out and wipe out everything except Jerusalem. Verse 23, it shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range of oxen and a place for sheep to roam. And so just domesticated cattle will just be running wild in the wilderness because all the farms are going to be wiped out. So actually, so what happens here is that these two kings are not going to come and destroy you. But essentially what he's saying, but if you don't repent... You're going to get wiped out by a completely different enemy, by a completely different enemy. And ironically, it's the enemy that that Ahaz was going to make a treaty with to go against those two nations in the earth. So the very country, Assyria, that he actually enters into an alliance with eventually will come back and wipe out the whole land except for Jerusalem. And so this is what Isaiah is having to deal with. He's dealing with this, uh, this wicked uh, king. And then in chapter 8, 
Excuse me for one second. In, in chapter 8, it says, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Any pregnant women in this room? Is a name for a son? Longest name in the Bible. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will... Take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of, uh, of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, call his name. Same thing. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That was his son. Which means... You may have the footnote. It means speed the spoil, hasten the booty. So spoil and booty were what, would, you know, when an enemy came in and destroyed a people, they'd take all the valuables. That's the spoil. That's the booty. And so it's just, again, it's speaking of judgment. You're just going to be a nation who's going to be judged, and people are going to come in and, and take everything that's valuable from you, uh, from you. And unfortunately, Isaiah had to name his kid that. Can you imagine naming your kid, speed the spoil, hasten the booty? That's, you know, hey, you know, come and eat, hurry up. You know, it's really good, speed the spoil, hasten the booty. Anyway, and this first grade teacher just over and over, you know, is Bill here, is Sally here, is Frank here, is speed the spoil, hasten the booty here? Isaiah married to a prophetess, verse 3. His wife was a prophetess. Can you imagine that? Hey, honey, I've decided, you know, to take you on a surprise weekend down to the Dead Sea. I'm sorry, I already knew that. You know. <laughs> Verse 4, For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother. So this is actually repeating the same prophecy uh, to Isaiah. The riches of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Syria. So, uh, the, the repeating the prophecy that you're going to have a child, and before he's old enough to say, um, uh, you know, to know good from evil, or actually to cry, my father, my mother, these two kings are going to be destroyed. Now, some people say that, oh, this must, m- must mean that the kid talked about in chapter 7, the immediate prophecy must have been Isaiah's kid. But the problem is what? Isaiah's kid was not named what? Emmanuel. His name was Maharshalal Hashbaz. Uh, And so, again, you know, commentators go back and forth about exactly who that was in chapter 7. But a similar prophecy with a different child in chapter 8, before your kid, Isaiah, No is going to say, my father, my mother, these two kings that are coming against uh, Judah are going to be killed. And they were. It's a historical fact that this prophecy uh, came to to pass. In verse 5, it says, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, the strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So I know it goes back and forth now again. Isaiah now is back to prophesying against the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom had refused, verse 6, the waters of Shiloh. That's a river that uh, flowed through the uh, Jerusalem. Remember the pool of Siloam where that miracle was? came right from the waters of this more kind of like a brook. It was, it was a, you know, a, a soft, gentle brook. And what happened in the north, the northern kingdom? They rejected 
the worship of Jehovah, the worship of God in Jerusalem. And instead, they set up their own religion up there. And Isaiah is just saying to them, he's prophesying to them, against them, you guys rejected Jerusalem, you rejected the temple, the worship of God there, the waters of Shiloh that flowed softly through uh, Jerusalem, and you rather you rejoiced in Rezin and Ramalia's son. <laughs> I wonder if that's a sign. No, it's not. Uh, now, therefore, behold, verse 7, the Lord brings up the river over them. So he's just prophesying against uh, the, northern, uh, the northern kingdom. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. So not easy to read through the Old Testament here. The, he goes from prophesying in verses 6 and 7 against the northern kingdom. And then in verse 8, he says the same one who's going to overrun the northern kingdom is going to come south to you, Judah. He says this king, who is it, Assyria, says he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the next and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. So, Emmanuel, God with us. The land of Emmanuel, Judah, was going to be judged. So, same theme. Try to follow me. I know this is a little difficult. These are two difficult chapters. Isaiah is saying, these two kings that are coming against you in the north, they're going to be wiped out by this other king, who, by the way, if you don't repent, is eventually going to come and overrun you. But that wouldn't be for about 150 years. So, uh, actually, no, I take that back. That would be about 30 years later where, where, where that was going to happen. And so, verse 9, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken to pieces. Give ear, all you from far country. Gird yourselves, but be uh, broken into pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken into pieces. Take Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Verse 10. So he's, gonna, he, he's prophesying now against the south. He's saying, you guys, you know, you're not going to repent. And God knows that. So even though those two kings in the north that are coming against you, that they're going to be wiped out, you guys are going to be wiped out too. And you're going to be, you know, taking counsel with one another, trying to come up with plans to avoid it. But you are going to be wiped out. Out. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their, of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be your sanctuary but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the day from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So, okay, now, so here's what's happening here. The Lord is going to Isaiah in verse 11. It says there, for the Lord thus spoke to me with a strong hand. And here in the next seven or eight verses, he's speaking to Isaiah and anyone else in Judah who's following the Lord. And he's saying, don't, he, 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 he's saying to them, don't walk in the way of this people who are out there saying, oh, there's a conspiracy. And, and, and it says, don't be afraid of their uh, threats and, and don't be troubled. In other words, you're going to be, when you're walking with the Lord amongst this people, they're going to be threatening you. They're going to be troubling you. But don't be troubled or afraid. Because, it, you know, rather, it says in verse 13, rather, it's the Lord you fear. You shall fear. So fear the Lord. Don't fear all these wicked people that are living around you. Don't fear them. Or don't, or don't, and neither should you fear the things that they fear. Because what was going on here in Jerusalem at the time is that the general populace, which was really wicked, they were following the ways of Ahaz, they were terrified, as wicked people always are. 
They're always fearful. They're terrified of these two kings coming to the north. And, 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 and this is a special prophecy given to Isaiah and anyone else who is following the Lord. One, don't be afraid of these wicked people that you're living around. Two, all the things that they fear, don't fear them. Just fear me. You'll be okay if you just fear me. You know, it's amazing I, 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 what will happen. And, and, you know, this is a prophetic word for the church today. It really, really is. You know, I, I, before the year 2000, there's all these people thinking, you know, saying that in the church that, you know, doom and gloom were going to happen. Uh, you know, just in Mission Hill, we had someone who came to our Bible study in Mission Hill who fled to New Hampshire. She sold her home for, for practically nothing. The home quadrupled in value within 10 years. She sold it in 1999, right before the year 2000, because she was scared that Boston was going to be just, you know, completely destroyed in the year 2000. And boy, is that a, a sermon illustration or what of what happens when you fear and you believe people who are saying, verse 12, conspiracy, conspiracy, oh, these horrible things are going to happen. I remember at the time when uh, there was actually some people at the church we were going to in Rockland, there were some people buying into the whole thing that, you know, oh, these horrible things are going to be happening when the year 2000 comes. Not the leadership of the church, but there's a bunch of people in the church who were like convinced of it. And they were like, just like this is saying, they would be little groups, they'd be home studies or whatever, they'd be sharing their theories of all these terrible things that were going to happen. Pastor Randy invited Ken Graves down to the church. I'll never forget. He said, all this stuff about the year 2000 and doomsday, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And I hope nobody in this room believes any of that garbage. And, and it was so great. It was like someone pouring water on the congregation. You never heard anything else about any of that nonsense. Ever again, from that day forward, it was like a prophetic work. That's what happens when, that's what Isaiah did here. He came in because no doubt, sometimes the people of God get infected by the fear of the world, that the world has. And that's what a prophet comes in and, and, and like Ken Grace, because he moved prophetically there. And, and, and he, just like Isaiah does here, look, everyone's crying conspiracy. Don't you guys be a bunch of knuckleheads and do the same thing. And so recently, I don't know if you've, you know, with the earthquake in Japan and the radioactive thing and stuff like that, sales of luxury doomsday bunkers up 1,000%. And say, can we flash this on the board? I have this image. Oh, we need to put the, the screens down. You can put these screens down. Let me just read this before you put it up. It says that fears of a nuclear meltdown are running rampant. Northwest Shelter Systems, which offers shelters ranging in price from 200000 to $20 million, has, has, has uh, seen sales surge 70%. Doomsday bunkers for $20 million. Sales have gone through the roof, Northwest President says, to the point where we're having trouble keeping up. UndergroundBombShelter.com, which sells portable shelters for nine for ninety five hundred dollars, has seen inquiries soar by four hundred percent since the Japanese earthquake. I, I guess I need to get out. Of, okay, so here you go. Can we just get the lights there? Here, here, here's a model of a doomsday bunker. Check that out. This is real. People are buying into this. Here's a doomsday bunker. You want to live there? You know, you, th things get a little crowded around dinner time here. You see, you see, there's the dinner area, and you know they're all crowded up there. Okay, you can grab the lights and, and and turn it off. But this is like real stuff here. It says, and and then and then the owner of one of the places. So he, he, here's here's another one. Vivos, a company that sells rooms in 200 person. Doomsday bunkers. So they go out and, and they sell rooms. You have the right to a room in a doomsday bunker. This is real stuff. Has received thousands of applications. A reservation requires a minimum deposit of $5,000. 
Vivo's CEO, Robert Vecino, says, where it ends, I do not know. Because with an economic, a true economic collapse, it'll lead to anarchy, which could lead to 90% of the population being killed off. Wow. Sounds prophetical to me, the book of Revelation. Then he goes, and here's what's really sad. So they talked to one of these people who just put down a deposit. Elon Yadan, a clothing store owner in Los Angeles, is one of the many customers who rushed to find a bunker last week. Yadin secured a spot for his family in a Vivo shelter, putting down four deposits totaling $20,000, $20,000 that had been earmarked for a down payment on a new home. Isn't that just tragic? Praise the Lord that we don't have to live in fear. I honestly, and they quote him, I honestly didn't want to do it, but unfortunately it looks like the worst expectations about the world are starting to come true. It says, and, and, and these Vivo's bomb shelters are in various stages of construction, but this out, a facility outshines them all. It's the bunker which is currently being built in the grasslands, underneath the grasslands of Nebraska, 137,000 square feet, bigger than a Walmart. And, and then here's my favorite. In this, this, this particular shelter will be fortified with a 350-foot lookout tower for residents who want to see what's happening in the outside world. So, you know, the outside world, it's, it's all, this thing needs to be turned off right here. The outside world is, is, you know, there's this waste and stuff. So you can go up, take a little elevator, and like look at the wasteland. I mean, is this crazy? But it's exactly the, the wonderful, the, the great thing. It, it's this is so appropriate. This, you know, this um, this prophecy here. Do not say, verse twelve, a conspiracy concerning all that this people calls a conspiracy. Don't give in to their fear. It says, nor be afraid. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow or consider holy. Let him be your fear. He will be as a sanctuary. He will be as a sanctuary to you, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel is a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, God's going to come in and judge, you know, a lot of these people. And some of these things may even turn out to be true, but we know what's going to happen. The rapture of the church. We're going to be rescued from um, uh, the judgment when it comes. When we're, we're, you know, we're told specifically... Uh, not to fear. And so what time is it now? We're over already, right? What time is it? So um, this this particular prophecy here, verse 14, quoted uh, in, the, in the New Testament, actually in the book of Matthew, where Jesus says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and he says, whoever falls on this stone, this is Jesus uh, speaking, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And just, you know, unfortunately for Israel, the stone they reject is going to wind up being the one who judges them. Is going to be the wind, uh, one who wind up, winds up being uh, judging them. And then in verse 18, it says, here am I. And the children whom the Lord has given me. Anyone recognize this? Boy, I'll be really proud of you if you recognize this. Where is this quoted in the New Testament? That's right, Hebrews chapter 2. Um, where it's just uh, Hebrews chapter 2 just going through. Uh, you know, this is actually attributed to Jesus actually in, in, in Hebrews chapter 2. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And so verse 19 says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? So the people were doing the exact same thing Ahaz was doing. As things got worse, Ahaz went into worse and worse um, 
pagan idolatry worship. People were doing the same thing. As things got worse, they would go to fortune tellers, mediums, bringing back the dead, whatever. Verse 20 says, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. So the worst the things we're going to get for this people under Ahaz. They're going to be wiped out. We read it in Second Chronicles 28. They're going to be wiped out by the Philistines, the, 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 the Syrians. Um, the, the Israelites in the north would, would, would punish them. And what were they going to do? They're going to shake their fist at God. Rather than repent, it says here in 20, verse 21, they were going to curse their king and their God. And, and so this is just so much what, what happens in the world when there's judgment. If, if God was a God of love, why would this be happening? Rather than looking into their own hearts and to the wickedness there and to, their, to the immorality and to the, into the forsaking of God. They're, they're shaking their fist at God. People have been doing the same thing for thousands of years. Verse 22, when they, when they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. I mean, that's some kind of judgment that's going to come on this land. So, uh you know, thank you for your patience. These are a couple of difficult chapters. They're they're a little difficult to go through, but they are very rich um, if you if you sort of read through them carefully. And and there's just a, a wonderful word to us living in the year 2011 of of how to not fear but to fix our eyes on the Lord. You know during a time where the rest of the world around us seems to be crumbling. 